So, Bob, as you might suspect, I have a lot of emails that people have sent in that we can answer. What do you say? I say let's answer these emails that I might expect. Anonymous listener, she says, this is going to sound weird, but I had a dream of you validating me. It's because you have been more validating to me than some therapists I've had. That's nice. I'm desperate to hear that my experience being cheated on has traumatized me. Mm -hmm. I'm hesitating to directly ask my therapist to do that for me, though. I've been giving hints, but maybe he's been reluctant to say it because he doesn't want my partner to feel attacked. Oh, maybe they're in couples therapy. Is it okay to ask for validation that the cheating has traumatized me? Bob, what do you think? Yeah, go ahead. Ask. Yeah. Yeah. Anything more to say about that? Um, (laughs) Yeah. I had this sort of friend, sort of colleague, whatever, uh, person I used to work with when I first moved to Seattle. He's a psychiatrist. And he was saying that what he thought to be true is that when a client has my voice inside their head, in other words, I'm a live introject, and they hear me coaching, that's about as high a compliment as one is ever going to get. Right. So it's lovely that this person hears you. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if others had that experience. And I have that experience with people that I've interjected. And, yeah, you know, it's... uh, And people will sometimes uh, feel embarrassed, right? And I don't understand this. You know, I I, uh, had a dream about a friend the other day, and I texted him about it. and, And... uh, there was a hint of, wow, I mean, it, it was shocking, or I think he was more shocked that I mentioned it, you know what I mean? Mm. But who else are you going to dream about other than people in your life, right? right? And you, your unconscious is your unconscious. You can't yeah. do anything about it. And two, um, you should be dreaming about people in your life and maybe even dreaming about people that you listen to in a podcast that you listen to all the time. Um, so... There's nothing weird about it, but nope. I think we have this cultural notion that if you dream about someone, you're like obsessed with them or oh, something. Oh, yeah, sure. Or you want to have sex with them or oh, something. Wow. And it's like, no, you know, not, I mean, maybe, but not necessarily, right? So um, I would imagine that a lot of people have dream, have dreams about me in the same way that I have a lot of dreams about the podcasters that I listen to. Right on. Yeah. Uh, so never feel ashamed of that. And I'm not, I don't, I've never adhered to that point of view and um in fact i i've always been this way when i was a kid i would tell my friends that i dreamt i was like i had a dream about you last night and i would tell them about the dream and i remember always getting this weird reaction in fact there's this one dream that i had about a friend of mine that and it was i won't give details but it was kind of an embarrassing dream for the two of us and to this day which would be 35 years later after (laughs) i had the dream uh, we still joke about the fact that I had had the dream and that I told him about the dream. <laughs> he still to this day is just like, uh, yeah, that dream you had. And and I don't know. I mean, dreams are dreams. What are you going to do? Yeah, and and do, right? dreams are weird. I mean, dreams yeah. are motivated by uh, associations and symbols that uh, are t- personal to us that sure. we don't really have any control of. Anyway, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, ask absolutely ask your therapist. That is the central function of therapy is validation. And so if you feel as though your therapist isn't validating you or you need validation around something, 
then that if you don't say something, you're essentially wasting your money on a, on a certain level. Like you need to be telling that person, like I need validation about how horrible the cheating on experience was for me. I feel like that hasn't been validated enough. Yeah. You need to bring that up. Yeah. Um, and to not is to just go through the motions of therapy to right. some extent. Um, the other thing is that, uh, it's not hard as a, a couples therapist myself to validate someone for their experience of being cheated on while not ostracizing the person who who did the cheating. No. I mean, hopefully we've gotten to a point in therapy where we've agreed as a threesome that the cheating was wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, hopefully so. you're at a point in your therapy where that is a understood idea. And so to validate the victim of such terribleness should not be a shocker to the person who did the cheating. You know, they, they, they should be. And if and if that's a problem, then that's got to be addressed, because if someone cheated on you and it's not accepted that they did something wrong, then something there's a lot there's a, a lot more to do. And you're not the problem at that point. You know what I mean? So. You absolutely deserve to have your... And the other thing I'll say is that the reason why I emphasize so often that cheating is wrong, that cheating is immoral, uh, by definition, cheating is when you do something against an agreement that you, you know, a romantic or sexual exclusivity agreement, or even in, you can cheat in a polyamorous relationship. You know, it it just goes against the agreement that you decided on. And for reasons that are intrinsic to the safety and trust in a relationship. You know, if I go against an agreement with my wife and I um, say we're going on a vegan diet for a week or something and I have meat, uh, that is, in all, with me and my wife, that wouldn't devastate her. But if I cheated on her, that would devastate her. You know, it's, there's an understanding that people hold these, not everyone, but a lot of, most people hold these things very dear to them and can... Uh, really be you know traumatizing and, and challenging Fuck yeah. and so the reason why I emphasize that that it's immoral that it's wrong it's not okay I'm not saying that people need to go to prison or some sort of moral uh, you know hole uh, you know no. some sort of moral prison no. or something I'm just saying it's wrong and it's obvious and the reason why I say it so often is because so many therapists don't uh, uh, come from that place yeah so many therapists will be like, well, people cheat for a reason. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make it okay. People, <laughs> ab people beat their spouses for reasons. That doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah, there are reasons. And, and particularly, I will say this, when it's a woman cheating. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people, when a woman is cheating, the assumption is, well, the man, the husband, in a heterosexual relationship, the man must be a jerk face. And when the man's cheating, it's often, well, he's a dog. And he might be a dog, and she might be involved with a jerk face. And maybe in the context, we're like, well, you know, if someone's routinely beating you and cheating on you, and you cheat, two wrongs don't make a right, but, it's, but in context, it's not like it's a horrible thing. But uh, I will hear people, the only thing they know about a couple is that she is cheating, and people will just give her a pass. And I'm like... No. Now, and the, now the reason why I'm saying no is for people like anonymous listener here who deserve the validation 
of their victimhood, that they have been victimized, that they have been harmed, that they've been lied to, that they have been... And it's it's one thing to lie once, but to cheat, you have to lie on a whole number of... Particularly if it's an ongoing relationship, you have to lie and lie and lie and lie and lie. And that is hurtful, even if you don't stay with that person, even if you break up. That is harm. That is going to mess you up. That's going to make it so that for the rest of your life, you have this major question mark about, can I really trust people? And that is harmful. It's not okay. okay. And and the fact that I have to say that, (laughs) the fact that I have to like assert that and that as a therapist, you might literally never hear this. And in fact, hear the opposite from your superiors and your professors is a problem like, and I don't understand it. I don't understand why people have, I, I think it's like, we want to not, I, I, th- I think there's a number of biases. One in our field, we don't want to moralize, right. which I find to be ridiculous because of course we all do moralize. We all understand that if someone punches you in the face, uh, you know, if, if, if client, if a couple comes in and, and they're, you know, someone's like, Hey, I, I punched my spouse in the face. And the victim of that verb, uh, physical abuse is like, I don't really mind. We would, as a therapist, say, well, I mind. Yeah. And that's wrong. That's not okay. You can't intimidate. You can't hurt. You can't do those things to someone. That's, that's wrong. Yeah. We have morals as therapists. We assert those morals. Sure. Uh, sometimes in opposition to what our clients are asserting as their morals. Yep. So to somehow claim, somehow try to be amoral in therapy i find it and there's a long debate about this but anyway um i I also think that we have just developed this culture in our field that we and i think for some good reasons that when people do bad quote-unquote bad things it's often because they're suffering which we understand right if someone is for example drinking alcohol every day a very viable and recommended perspective is i wonder why they need alcohol you know what is it that instead of looking that at them as drinking because there's something weak about them or they're immoral or they don't have good character which is often what society will say we will say no 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 there's a reason why they're doing that and i think for some reason we've expanded that and only uh, have that as the foundation for why people will cheat. And of course that is a viable perspective. And I've often found that to be the case when people are cheating, they are often, it does come from a place of suffering. Of course. It, but it doesn't make it any worse for the victim. No, you know, or better. Yeah. So, uh, right. It doesn't make any, right. That's the right. right there's there. a, there's a triage though, right? There's a, like, if we don't attend to the wound, we're we're putting the cart before the horse. We attend to the wound first, and then we intend to the things that led to the wound. Right. I heard a couple therapists say, yeah, maybe this takes place in a context, but whatever that context was, it led you to acting unilaterally. And unilateral does not work in a relationship. Right. So, so yeah, so it could be that the therapist is afraid to validate for fear of alienating the other person or pissing them off or whatever. But But maybe what the therapist could do is model proper remorse like oh that's what i did oh that's what happened to you of course you're in agony about it of course you're really suffering because it might be that the person that did the cheating either doesn't understand or is in denial about the impact of their um 
um, behavior and also the, 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 um, what's the word, you know, like the magnitude of it and the longevity of the pain. Cause that ain't never going away. Right. Not that they can't heal from it. They can, but that ain't never going away at the same time. Yeah, and the last thing, that's the reason why I think this happens is it's so much easier to blame the victim, which we see in all sorts of contexts. Right. right. I mean, that's why we have this phrase called victim blaming. And and I've often wondered why do we do this? You yeah. know, it, when we're faced with a difficult situation, like we're presented with cheating, and we have contact with both people, it's so much easier to just be like, well, no one's to blame, or the victim must have done something to provoke it or something, or there must be a context. It's so much easier just to, to do that because it's perceived as like, well, I don't have to confront anyone. Whereas when you go along with the reality that someone has been harmed, you have to look at the person who victimized the other person and say, in so many words, you victimized someone. Yeah. You did something that was wrong. You've done something. And that's hard to do you know yeah. if, if you have to face someone and you have to say that but grow a backbone therapists you know like <laughs> you're in this to win it and and you got to do what's right and and it's not a matter of humiliation that's i've worked with so many people who were cheating in the moment who had cheated in the past and i develop a deep relationship with those people sure but I do, but i do not dance around the notion that they harmed someone no i will say you did something that was harmful, but at the same time, I will bond with them. I will understand that people do harmful things, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to act like they didn't harm someone. No, <laughs> I'm just, it's not real. It's no, not true. And it doesn't one help the victim to not validate that and understand that. And two, it doesn't help the perpetrator to dance around the fact that it happened. You know, it, the perpetrator needs to know that they did something wrong so yeah. that they can fix it. Cause like I said, I've never seen a case and I'm sure it happens where someone cheats for just kind of random reasons. You know, it's, it's, it always comes from a place of, in fact, everyone that I have treated who, who cheated, they were suffering actually on the average, probably greater than the victim was uh, in their life, in their emotional life. People who cheat have tremendous suffering that they're going through they're not necessarily suffering as they're cheating, but the path to the cheating was, you know, fueled <laughs> the vehicle as they were going down the road of cheating, you know, eventually getting to the destination of cheating was fueled by pain and relational traumas sure. and, and just, uh, just nothing good. You All know? worthy of consideration. Yeah. Yeah. All right. End of soapbox. Uh, patron Lauren from Tacoma says, I'm finishing my bachelor's degree in early 2022 at the age of 35 years old. Yay, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, Then starting, I went to Tacoma. I wonder if that's PLU. Is that the only program? Yeah, yeah. Um, Then starting my master's degree in counseling. Oh, a bachelor's degree in 2022. So maybe. Could be UPS. Yeah. Could be PLU. Uh, doesn't UW have a Tacoma UW branch? Has a Tacoma um, I'm worried that maybe it's too late to change careers, though, at my age and already being established in life with a house, etc. Is it reasonable expectation to manage the workloads of graduate school and internships with a full time job while I make a current career transition? Or is it reasonable to say that it's just too late for me? Bob, what do you think? Well, no, not the too late part. You You get to decide the cost benefit of 
you know, making the change and whether or not that's actually something that you want to do, if it's worth it to you, but not something as arbitrary as too late. The hell with that. Yeah. Yeah. And regarding workload, um, I have seen many students with various different workloads that they will take on, but Antioch uh, uh, attracts a lot of working people with kids. You know, Antioch is, uh, we have always provided this flexible uh, schedule where you can take anywhere from zero to four classes a quarter. And you can take anywhere from two and a half years to six years to finish your program. So it is flexible to, to your needs. And so we attract people who are older, who have kids, who have a full-time job, who, you know, have other kinds of things in their lives. And, um, you know, cause that's different than if you're 22 and you're still being supported by your parents and you don't have kids, you don't have a spouse and you don't even have a job and all you have to do is go through your graduate school. I've, I can only remember one student that was even remotely close to that. And she still had a job and lived on her own. And anyway, so, um, so there are some programs that will, most programs you have to go through at their pace. You know, it's, 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 they usually have a full-time program that could be all encompassing and time consuming. And then they might have like a part-time track that can be like slightly less full-time. It's usually not like, the options you have at Antioch where you can literally take like one or two classes a year and, and maybe not that many, that few, but maybe three classes a year and graduate. Anyway, my point is, is that you want to look at that. The other thing is, is that even a full-time school, I've seen students manage, uh, you know, they're not, they're not, not stressed, <laughs> you know, um, but they have, they work full-time. They're going to school full-time. They're at an internship. They have kids, they have a spouse, they have family. Now you're not going to have a life, with that, you know, the one thing that will go is socializing. You're not going to be able to hang out with your friends or go to birthday parties because any free time you have, you're going to be reading and writing papers and going to class, this kind of thing. But you could still have kids and have a full-time job even and do all those things. That's what I did. I mean, when I got my doctorate, I had a podcast. I had a full-time job at Antioch. I had a part-time job as a, as a therapist and a supervisor. I was in a band and I did have a life ish. Uh, I had to uh, significantly reduce the socializing that I did, but I still socialized and I made it work. I was stressed out. I, I had to, I had to say it for like one of the things that I said no to was football. Like I stopped watching. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. I was like, I made a conscious choice. Like I, I need to regiment my time so precisely that I can't watch sports anymore. And so I didn't watch sports. Ironically, the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl while I was still in graduate school. So I didn't see hardly any of that season building up to it, but I did watch the Super Bowl. You at, came to my house at your house. Yeah. Um, fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so people certainly can make it work. I don't know if that'll work for you, Lauren, uh, but I know for a lot of people, absolutely make it work. Uh, anonymous listener says, what degree or career do I have to do to do what you do? I'm very interested in TV, psychology, and culture. I did not know that I could combine all my interests until I watched your YouTube channel. Oh. I'm interested in what you do. As a college student, I want to know what your career path was like. Well, 
Uh, briefly, what I'll say is what I did. And I don't know if this will help you, anonymous listener, but I got a degree. Uh, I got a bachelor's degree in business. Uh, you, you just need a bachelor's degree to enter clinical fields of psychology. You don't need an undergrad in psychology. And then I got a master's. Um, and then a, later I got another master's and a doctorate in a psychology therapy related field. You got a second master's? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, through your PhD program? My PsyD program. Yeah. Your PsyD, excuse me, your PsyD program. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I sometimes point that out because I feel like I want the credit for it because yeah. uh, there are people who are doctorate, like marriage and family therapists, who they got a master's in marriage and family therapy and then they got a doctorate in marriage and family therapy and the doctorate portion only covered the doctorate portion. I oh, got man. a master's in marriage and family therapy. Essentially, it's not officially that, but essentially that. And then I went into psychology, and they don't recognize that master's. And mm. so I had to start over as if I only had man. a bachelor's degree. Oh man! <laughs> and and you know, and it was you know, there was a lot of review. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and to tell you the truth, there were times when I knew. A lot more than the professor did. Oh, man. Because I, w- I was a professor when I was getting my doctor. Right. And not every professor is, you know, super experienced. Now, they, the professor knew, on average, a lot more than the average student did, but not necessarily more than what you I knew. a particular kind of student. <laughs> yeah. That didn't happen very often, but it was a little... And what I would do is I'd say, well, I'm not really absorbing anything here, but I will use it as an opportunity to kind of, like self explore yeah like I'll, I'll kind of go deeper on where, where my fronts are i suppose but autodidact yeah anyway so you want to get a master's or doctorate in a therapy related field that's what i did you want to practice i think for a while I, i've been practicing for 25 years oh yeah definitely because that will that gives you so much experience with humans and with what therapy is and you also want to have a wide variety of clients because you, you know, and yeah. usually early career people, you will just by default. Yeah. You want to get good supervision and consultation because yes. a lot of what I've learned about therapy and about psychology and about who I am and about how to supervise is through conversations with others. Uh, I was a professor for, and have been for 25 years. And when you're a professor, you learn what you teach. And you want to teach a wide variety of classes. I haven't taught a super wide variety, but I don't know. Well, uh, if you're teaching case consultation, though, you have to know a lot. Right. So there are certain classes where you basically have to know everything. I mean, to teach case consultation, yeah. you are supervising a handful of clinicians in right. your early career. And you have to understand theory, obviously. You have to understand ethics. You have to understand technique. You have to understand relationships. You have to understand how to provide an attachment between you and the supervisee either you know there's so many things you have to know right um i was a supervisor uh, and have been for 21 years and and true supervision not just like overseeing but actually like mentorship that kind of mm-hmm. and then you know start i started making content i've been doing that over 13 years so that's the path that i took and i would say that i didn't really become a good podcaster until five years ago or something and i was a podcaster for eight years up until that point. I mean, I was okay in the beginning, <laughs> but but I would say that I wasn't... Um, I think there's a, a noticeable um, quality increase about maybe seven years ago or something. Oh, you know what I mean? Uh, 
uh, I mean, they were okay in the beginning. And, and to be honest, or to be fair to me, I didn't take the podcast that seriously. Um, I mean, I took it seriously, but there's a period of time when I was getting my doctorate, for example, that I just didn't have the time. And so, time. so I, I kind of phoned it in occasionally. Um, but anyway, so that's what I, but getting to your, and, and so the gestalt of what, I, the reason why I'm laying all this out is mm-hmm. that to be able to podcast and Bob is saying to be able to talk about psychology, to be able to talk about humans, to be able to talk about therapy, to be able to talk about, um, you know, attachments and this kind of thing, it requires a lot of experience. You can't just learn it from a book or a YouTube channel or even from a couple years of experience. I mean, can you imagine you and I talking two years after we graduated? We we would be at such a lower level of sophistication and would make a lot of mistakes and or not be able to answer a lot of questions because we're just like, well, I don't know. Yeah. I haven't really been there. So a lot of what might be appealing to the podcast and the YouTube channel, for that matter, is coming from a, you know, a reservoir of experience that I have. Uh, and, and, and so, and that's the other thing I want to point out as well is some people as students will be like, Kirk, you're so knowledgeable. I don't understand. I feel so like, I feel so stupid, you know, like I, I, I don't, I, I feel like I'm a failure because you seem to know so much. And I, I, I barely grasp these things. I don't understand. And I'll say like, well, I was just like you at your stage. You know, I don't know what it is in American culture or something. We just have this notion of, like, we should just be a thing instead of having to do the work. I think we've gotten away from, like, apprenticeship ways of thinking where, at, like, Japan, they do this. If you watch Jito, Dream, Dream, Dreams of Sushi. Have you seen that documentary? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ten years just to make rice. Right. Yeah. Because... They understand just to make rice. Listen to me. <laughs> Ten years on making rice in order to become a master. Right. Uh, and as an uh, and for and for us, and this is an extreme version of Japanese apprenticeship. But the uh, the culture of apprenticeship and mentorship is so strong there that people just accept. Look, I am I'm 45 years old, and I still haven't mastered rice making the way the master has, and I'm still learning. In America, we want to pop out of grad or of you know a degree and or uh, yeah a bachelor's degree and just like be given a career. It's because yeah. because some people are like that. You know, there's some people manage that. Uh, you know, Zuckerberg, these kinds of people, just like the age of twenty three, they're a billionaire. But let's be clear, that guy learned a lot along the way. Right, huge amount. Right, and 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 the uh, origin stories of a lot of these right uh, people. Get, filtered through the American ideal, yeah. it often leaves out the right. the grind that the grind you have pains. to go through. Yep. Yeah, the 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 mundanity of learning through experience. Um, so, uh, hmm. so that's why I say that. Like to get to a place. So, if we say eight years ago, I became um, uh, the podcaster that you know today. And it took me even longer to become the YouTuber that you know today. Uh, I would say I didn't become a, a good YouTuber until maybe a year ago. Um, it took so much trial and error and getting to know my voice, getting to know human beings, getting to know myself, getting to know how to speak off the top. I mean, there are things that I have. Uh, I'm not a very good public speaker. I'm not a very good talker. 
And I realized this early in my life, but when I started podcasting, because I, I edit all these things. And so when I would record podcasts in the early days, I would have to edit almost every sentence I said because I would say, um, a lot, or, you know, or I would pause too long or something. And over the 13 plus years, I have slowly trained myself and I'm 50 years old now and I'm still getting rid of certain quirks that are annoying as a public speaker. And uh, it, it's, it's so it's 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 experience. It's, there's so many little skills, so many little abilities that one hones over time. So uh, uh, yours, your it sounds like you're a younger person, and I'm a sister. You're like, how do I get to where you're at? Well, you know, spend 25 years in a career, and spend you know how many hours is is that? It's 50,000 hours plus in a career, right? 2000 yeah, hours. That's right. So 50,000 plus, you know, hours doing one kind of area of work and you'll, and not only just that, but also the know-how of content creation and of the tech side of everything and how to present yourself well. And, um, you know, then you'll, you know, you'll get there. One but, of the things though, that you're not saying that I think is really important is how much work you do now to prepare for particular deep dives. You right. study up like crazy. Yeah. Even what we're doing right now, Bob and I, I spent, you know, hours, uh, cultivating all of, or curating all these emails. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't just open my email and start, I got to like pick particular emails I have to edit them. Mm-hmm. I have to take notes on what I'm going to say. I have to pace everything out. I have to think yeah. what will Bob respond to well. Um, and, and that's just one part of the content creation thing that I've learned how to do over time. Right. Uh, the other thing that you say here, anonymous listener, is I'm very interested in TV psychology and culture. I'm not hearing that you're interested in providing a clinical service. No. It doesn't sound like uh, in that sentence, maybe you are, but in that sentence, I don't hear... I want to be a therapist. I, you know, that was my primary mission for over, you know, I don't know, for a couple decades was that was my identity. I was a therapist who also taught and also did a podcast. But my primary mission in my life was to interface with clients who were hiring me and I would help them with their issues. And it just so happens that that translates, I guess, into content creation. I didn't set out to, to provide content. If I did, I wonder if I would be where I'm at today. Yeah, you know, I if, wonder too. Yeah, if I, if I, at the age of 24, decided I want to be a YouTuber and I want to talk about TV and stuff and psychology, I wonder if I would be, you know, 10% of, of what I am today because... I had to go through all that stuff because I wanted to, not because I wanted to make content. <laughs> I wanted to be a therapist desperately, and I still do. And then later on, I wanted to be a professor ad- additionally. And that was, and if I never made content, if I never made a podcast, if I was never on YouTube, I would have been totally content. So the content only sort of followed that. So uh, if you're not interested in being a clinician, uh, I think you should. Uh, think about what sort of content you want to create yeah. and how, what your voice should be, you know, because for me and Bob, our voice is that of a therapist yeah, and we speak true. from that place. Yeah. Whereas if you're just interested in TV psychology and culture, 
you know, maybe there's a different sort of voice that, that you have and it's you don't like, need a degree and you don't need to practice as a clinician. It's like that Dr. Lara, right? Yeah. Well, what do you mean? She has a doctorate in like physiology or something completely unrelated to psychology. And yet is a person of strong opinion who creates content or at least created content um, based on, you know, people writing in and asking her questions. I don't know why anybody would be interested in her opinion. I don't think there's a whole lot of soundness to what she has to say and certainly no uh, training behind it, just a person of strong opinion. So you could do that. Right. But would you be adding any value? Yeah. And maybe, you know, I, I, I've seen some non clinicians who create content that I get behind. Right on. I'm not like it's, you know, super complicated clinical stuff, but it, it was not, it didn't rub me wrong. Let's just put it that way. But yeah, I, you know, Dr. Laura, let's talk a little bit about her. So what, what do you, what's your impression of her? What do you know about her? Um, I think she's a person that has strong opinion and is willing to sort of announce it publicly. Do you like her? No. Yeah. Why don't you like her? Because I think the things that she, is she still on? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I imagine. Okay. Well, I think the things that at least I've heard her say are um, non-compassionate, judgmental, simple, which is really great for a bite-sized radio show where people call in and ask questions about, you know. Right. Like someone will call in and say, uh, and this, I remember this was kind of a classic cause she, thing that she would do. A, a woman would call in and say, my husband is looking at porn and I feel really hurt by that or, or something more stark. Like my husband cheated on me and I, I don't know. And she would just say something like, well, you must be doing something wrong in bed. And she would, and the caller would say like, well, really? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess in bed things have been kind of bad lately. Well, there, and Dr. Lara would say, well, there you go. You, You neglected the bedroom. And so he started cheat. So get over yourself and stop being a victim. And, you know. I bet you anything she said things like that to callers, right? Simple, simple, moralized, judgmental, unhelpful, unhelpful, (laughs) blaming the victim. Yeah. um, You know, things that I think do not add anything useful and actually pollute understanding and insight and decency. Yeah. So here's my story about Dr. Laura. Really? Yeah. So for me, and I hadn't really remembered this until I was talking with someone recently. I can't remember who, but I don't think I've, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before and I feel worried about talking about it, but find out if this is going to make it on. (laughs) I think it will. So I'm, so I often talk about my origin story as I got a business degree. I started working in, uh, I worked at foot locker and had a hard time in the beginning of my quote unquote career. And then I eventually got a job working in market research for a hospital and then for a market research firm. And I, I liked it and it was fun. And I, I I was a project manager and, you know, had my own office and I would help, you know, clients like Microsoft evaluate the satisfaction of their customers and help them develop their marketing approach or their market research approach, their research of the customers approach, you know, focus groups and, uh, it was, you know, it was exciting and interesting and, but it ultimately wasn't very fulfilling to me. And so I was 
in traffic. I also was working eight to five, which in an office, which felt just completely, I'm a, I'm not a morning person. So I had to get up at like seven o'clock in the morning and fight traffic. And there's a lot of downsides to this kind of career. And I'm in traffic on 520, and I just start thinking, oh, there's got to be something else. And being a therapist popped in my head, and then a little bit later, I'm applying, and uh, six months later, you and I meet at graduate yeah, school. Right. And so that's that's a story that I tell, because yeah. people often ask, you know, how did you get into it? Right. And so that's story. There's another element to this that mm-hmm. I don't rem- that I don't often remember, but started to remember more recently, and that mm-hmm. was that while I was working at that job, uh-huh. I spent a lot of time in my car because I'd be in the in the in traffic a lot, and I would also spend a lot of time at lunch by myself. I would go to Taco Bell because they would I think they had like three tacos for a dollar. Oh yeah. And I would buy six tacos for two dollars or something, and that was like taxes tax included, I think. Anyway, Whoa. and I would just eat the because I didn't have any money, and I would just eat these tacos. And and Doctor Laura was on the radio. Uh huh. I don't know what radio station, but it, it was, you know, something that I would tune into. And mm-hmm. I remember, I don't remember, I to my memory, she wasn't a jerk face to people. Oh, right she on. was, I think she was a little bit of an anti-feminist. I but I remember really it was the it was a kind of a glimpse into what therapy could look like. People calling in with problems. Oh, uh-huh. Which ironically is kind of what I do now when people email in, right? But it anyway. Is. So she would take these calls and she would just talk. And I re- I remember back then she wasn't as bad. This would have been 94, 95. And uh I didn't start hearing bad things about her until maybe 2005 or something, maybe, maybe year 2000. But back then I think she was still relatively balanced. I can't know that for sure. Sure. But it was inspiring to me. And I even bought her book, which oh. was like 10 things women do that are stupid or something. I can't, <laughs> anyway. And I don't remember being blown away by the book, but I, I, I was, you know, I was my, cause this is before podcasting. Sure. And as someone who loves podcasting, podcasts and, and that kind of form, talk radio, This American Life I listened to oh, back yeah, then. Oh, great show. And so uh, there were very few instances of conversation. And this was one of them. And it was also emulating this kind of like helpfulness. This is before Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla that oh. I eventually liked as well. And yeah. you could absolutely... Um, indict me for that as well. I mean, yeah. and, and, but back then they were different in yeah. my, uh, and this would have been 97 ish yeah. that I was listening to them and they were a lot less problematic than they are today. Agreed. Yeah. And I um, uh, was listening to Dr. Laura and I think part of my motivation to become a therapist was based on this, uh, ex- this um, exposure to what little bits of therapy could look like. I also think I adhered to the idea that therapy looked like Dr. Laura. I was disabused of that very quickly yeah, when right. I was in graduate school. Right. But but yeah, so I, I think I need to incorporate Dr. Laura into right on. Why, when people ask me, how did you become a therapist? I think I need to reluctantly add her in a little bit. Why reluctant? Well, because of what she's associated with today, which is all the things you said, which makes me look like some kind of dimwit (laughs) or some kind of anti-feminist 
judgmental mm. a-hole, you know? Mm. Uh, but I, I don't remember that being a part of what she was doing back then. It's not a part of who you are. But it'd be like saying, I mean, obviously this is more extreme, but it'd be like saying, well, you know, when Hitler was young, he was a nice guy. Like, it's, it's hard to feel that. It's hard to be convinced of that if you only have experience with Dr. Laura of late, you know? Understood. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is I'm not a scholar on Dr. Laura. She might have some wonderful things to say. I, I don't know. All I know is that she's famous for being a provocateur uh, and distasteful to me. Yeah. Uh, of you know, and, but maybe they're just cherry picking the worst of the worst. I will say the cherry picked worst of the worst is pretty bad. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I can't remember what sort of stance she had that was ridiculous. It was some kind of thing women calling in about. I can't remember what it was, but anyway. Yeah. So I'm coming out of the closet that welcome into the light. (laughs) All right. Take a break. We get back more questions. What do you say Bob? Yes. All right. We're back from the break. Annual patron Lauren says, hi, Kirk, Stacy, Umberto and Bob. I have made some pretty big changes that I do not think I would have made without your influence. Uh, I am relocating to Tahoma, and I am looking into employment options in Tahoma. Do you have any employment ideas for an LPC, a licensed professional counselor student, moving to Tahoma? Bob, what do you think? What's Tahoma? Yeah, I think Lauren thinks Tacoma is called Tahoma. Oh. Yeah. Um, I, I, and also, I think Tahoma is another way of saying Tacoma. I'm not sure about that. I, I think there's a movement to call Mount Rainier Mount Tahoma. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, because uh, white people came uh, yeah, to right. the Seattle area and just started naming yeah, things. Yeah. White, instead, white of, people, yeah. instead of asking what the name is of the thing by the people who live by the right. thing. Um, they, so They probably garbled the native names that are in use now. Yeah, which you can't really blame... You know, trying to speak in another person's sure. like accent would be hard. Like hard Seattle, for example, is uh, so there was a chief who yeah. lived in Seattle in the 1800s, and he was called Chief Seattle, or he was called Chief South, or we could imagine in Native American accented language, you know, their accent. Yeah, it would sound something very difficult for us to pronounce right. as in you know contemporary English speakers. Right. And so they uh, heard, you know, they, what's your name? He's right. like, well, my name is Seattle, so, you know, something along something. those lines. And people heard, sometimes they heard the word Seattle and sometimes yeah. people heard the word self. And so we have, the town is called Seattle, but we have Chief Self High School. Yeah. And the chief is often, we have a statue of him downtown right. and it's called the Chief Self statue right anyway i think i have all that right i believe that's correct yeah but anyway so tahoma is another so yeah the first thing annual patron lauren is to stop calling it tahoma <laughs> unless you're referring to some town maybe near seattle called but i don't think I'm, there's a town not, called tahoma it's tacoma yeah and the another thing you have to know is we have a thing called the tacoma aroma <laughs> Because there's a paper mill or a... Wood pulp. Wood pulp. What do they do there? I think they make paper. Yeah. 
and it smells to high heaven. It permeates well beyond the Tacoma boundaries. And as soon as you pull into town, uh, you sp- although does it? Yeah, still, still smell. We we just drove through it uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, still still smells. Yeah. Uh, so know about the Tacoma hey, aroma. I think if you live the, there, you, you get used you to get it. You get used to it, and you don't yeah. even notice it. But anyway, ideas for annual patron Lauren, LPC, licensed professional counseling student, right? right. Oh. Moving to Tacoma, employment ideas. Well, could she work at an agency? Yeah. So one set of jobs is you could just get any old job at an agency, like a you know a receptionist, because you'll be in contact with the field and those in the field, and right. that, that kind of you kind of absorb that, which is maybe helpful. Or a paraprofessional is what they often will call them, who are bachelor's level people who work with clients, like they might uh, help the client with a skill. Like yeah. what I, I used to do. Uh, form of wraparound services and and i would be the therapist they would be working with the family and the and and the child of concern but we'd have these ba level paraprofessionals who i might task with hanging out with the kid Mm -hmm. giving the parents some respite from the kid maybe teaching the kid uh, a skill continuing to work on a skill of emotional regulation or something Something. so you're not the clinician but you are a part of the team and Getting doing experience. Yeah. Doing therapy like things. And, um, and I, that's what I did when I was in my graduate degree, mm-hmm. I had a job, uh, they didn't call us paraprofessionals, but it was, it was essentially that, um, you could also get a job at the crisis line. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is I get this question from people, which I think is a good question, but I don't think it's important to do because there's no real job that approximates what it is to be a therapist. I mean, the crisis line may be kind of, but not really. Not really. And Which isn't to say that it isn't useful. It just isn't... It's um, it's not needed. You don't think the crisis line is needed? No, no. I'm saying... Oh, I see what you're saying. I I thought you were saying it's not useful. I'm saying it's not needed to get a job in a related field before you go to graduate school. No, I don't think it's needed. Sometimes the schools have those kind of requirements to have some kind of whatever experience. I'm not sure why they do, but they do. Well, we used to have that primarily, and I didn't know this for years as to, I had the same, I was like, why do we have that? Because they wanted to make sure you knew what you were getting into. Oh, okay. Which I find to be dumb because if the job isn't actual therapy, then how do you, how could you, how could one ever know what it's like to be a therapist before they're, a therapist, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that was the reason that I was told. And that's one of the reasons why we got rid of it or I got rid of it. Cause I'm just like, it's, it's, and cause it was such a hassle cause yeah. so many people would come to us with that. And it was a hundred hours, you know, it wasn't just like 10, <laughs> you needed a hundred hours of related therapy related uh, work. Yeah. And some people came to us with that. Maybe they're a paraprofessional or something. But eventually we got real funny with what qualified. Like if you were a nanny that qualified and I'm like, so if you're just around kids, you know, like that's, that's like therapy. I I don't think so. Yeah. So it, and and so we'd end up having to funnel all these people into, you know, really weird situations and it was, and other programs didn't require it. So, so we got rid of it. Um, um, I get the idea, but I don't think it, I think it was more busy work than anything else. Mm. But the thing I'll say is is that I don't think that it's important 
you know, because there's a certain class of student that are just like, okay, I've applied to graduate school, right. but I, and I have all this energy to learn and to get experience. What do I do before graduate school? Mm-hmm. What what books do I need to read? Hmm. What job should I get? And I'm always like, you're going to get so much of that yeah. <laughs> once you start graduate school and beyond. Enjoy your freedom before you go. to <laughs> That's what I say is like, just in read a book you want to read because those days will be over once you start graduate school. Uh, and there's no book that will really propel you ahead of the game. You know, you're, you're, there's so much to learn yeah. and you'll learn it, you know, in grad graduate school and beyond, um, you know, enjoy your pre-grad life is yeah. what I say. Anyway. And it certainly won't matter in the long run. You know, it's it's not like yeah. those who had some random paraprofessional job for a year before graduate school are somehow better off post grad. You know, that, that's just not how it works. No. Uh, uh, upper tier patron Mel from Sydney. She writes, "Hi Kirk and Bob. Hi. I have come to know that I have an anxious, preoccupied attachment style when I am stressed out, and my partner is very avoidant hmm. in situations where he is stressed." He tends to completely ignore me or avoid me anywhere between a few days, uh, a few hours to days. Mm. So he has to quote unquote, so he quote, has room to think or space to be by himself. Mm. I completely respect this and want to support him by not bugging him. However, this usually lasts about a day before I become extremely anxious. I struggle to calm my racing mind, even though there is evidence that he loves me. In these situations, I want to avoid bringing the attention to myself when it is my partner who needs this, my support and care. Bob, what do you think? Well, I don't think that last bit is true. Each person needs support and care in a relationship. So yours is every bit as valid and worthy of attention as his. It's lovely that you're caring about him. Um, I'm thinking about that still face. You seen those still face, that Edtronic stuff? It, there's a three-minute video on YouTube uh, um, made by a psychologist at Harvard called uh, Ed Tronick, T-R-O-N-I-C-K, Ed Tronick. I like his name. Um, that shows a mom and an infant. Oh, yeah. You know this one. Where the mom is, you know, just talking to her one-year-old kid, whatever the way you talk to a one-year-old kid. And then what they ask her to do is they ask her to turn away and get a blank face on her on her and then turn back to the kid and not respond for two minutes and you watch the, what the baby does and it, and what the baby does is all these things to try to get her attention from um you know sort of like what's happening here and sort of wondering and you know all these like please or, or excuse me bids like pointing at something or or smiling or whatever all the way up to getting really really upset and really um anxious and um crying and and um you know Poor little... It's actually quite hard for me to... I've seen that movie... I've seen that three-minute clip probably 50 times, and every time I see it, it breaks my heart. Right. So just to uh, drill down on that a little bit, yeah. the idea is is that humans, yes. particularly infants from with their parents, right. need uh, this very frequent acknowledgement of connection and attunement and noticing each other. Yep. And when the uh, parent provides this still face, meaning this blank look on their face they're right. you know they're they're right in front of their infant just looking at them right eye contact but right. just no facial expression None. it is bothersome to the 
child and yeah. to any human because we are social creatures and we don't feel safe when we are with people who are detached from us and we are in constant need of connection of are we experiencing the world together are we together are do you see me do you right. notice me um, I notice you that back and forth and this is instinctual to parents and, and to infants and the thing that the baby first does is and you'll see it if you watch the video the yeah. baby the baby looks at the mom and is like tries to make a little noise because uh -huh. that's their routine the baby will make a noise like hey yeah because it's pre-verbal infant right and the mother will go oh you know yeah. like there's a mirroring of like i we're communicating yeah. we're on the same page so the baby signals like a little little vocalization right no response from the mom the kid looks away and just looks for something interesting sees something points at it because right. again that's another routine because yep. the mom usually will be like oh you see a horsey and right. the kid will be like oh, you know it even though the infant doesn't know what words are being said it's just it it feels and is a connection yes um baby does that mom doesn't do anything and then eventually the kid starts to kind of get antsy yeah. kind of that uncomfortable infant like squirming around squirming. in the in the chair and yeah. bunches up the face and starts to cry and the mom still has still. this very blank look yep. and all this is happening within like 90 seconds you know it's, they, it's very yeah, run it for two very, minutes very quick oh it's fast that the infant is like um i don't like this feeling yeah <laughs> you're here right but we're not connected so that's what you're talking yeah about. right and so after two minutes then she re-engages and the kid's fine uh, you know, the kid gets soothed and comforted and then they're back to normal, which is kind of like how it goes for humans. And so the reason it came to mind, though, is because your partner goes away. They're not even in front of you. You experience them as disengaged and you find your nervous system revving up the way it seems like it's made to the way the way it would. I'm not sure that that is a marker of anxious preoccupied. Maybe it is. Maybe there's an element to that, but maybe it's also, you know, in some ways normal that um, when our partner is out of touch that we um have a growing um arousal inside about that so if it were to go yeah, on I, I didn't made that connection it makes total sense yeah and for those people with preoccupied attachment they probably had a lot of analogous experiences right. as we're talking about right not a parent who purposely puts on a, a still face no but the lack of attunement and that yeah. that squirmy feeling that the baby that the infant is feeling was right. probably felt by anxious attached people throughout their childhood. Yeah, right. And so perhaps you have an amplified version of what would happen to anybody. Maybe it's amplified. Who's not? I mean, you can't measure it. So whatever. It doesn't really matter. What you're noticing is that your own need um, asserts itself. It comes up in anxiety. It comes up in, in you know, worry thoughts or um, whatever. And one of the things that you do is what a lot of uh, anxious, preoccupied people do, which is you focus on your partner's behavior. And what do you got to do to get them to behave? But it's really, I was thinking about this while, Kirk, you were talking about the, you know, uh, the thing, uh, that, that, that video. I was thinking, it's really fascinating to me. The thing I find most fascinating about people these days is the way in which their need seeks its own getting met. And 
when when you're focused on him and it sort of looks like oh i care about you i'm interested in you know you're an avoider or whatever blah 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 you know it's not untrue you do of course care about your partner but really the the thing that centrally motivates you me anybody really is your own need and your own need has to do with getting some kind of reassurance that he's still out there that he still cares right. that he's still your partner right and the preoccupied person developed this style often not everyone but yeah. a lot of people with preoccupied attachment well, one, devalue the self and value others right. uh, by opposition. And two, will be very other-focused instead of self-focused. Yep. And what you're pointing out is it's fine that you're uh, narrativizing the situation as it's it's about him. He needs to avoid, and I get that, and I want to allow that. Instead of, at the very least, additionally considering the fact that you are being neglected yeah. and that you are alone and that you feel hurt. Yeah. And that you are anxious and right. you ha- you have, you know, rights, right. so to speak. <laughs> um, now, what do you do with that, you know, is the question. Uh, of course, if you just assert, you know, this is a classic arrangement yep. between a preoccupied and avoidant person. Yes. And classic regarding gender as well. Yep. Although I will say clients who come into me, I will see various configurations regarding gender. Right. Uh, anyway, point is, is that. You are experiencing a classic pursuer, distancer, avoidant, preoccupied dynamic, and experiencing the classic. That what's not classic is that you're aware of it, Mel. Yeah, right. On. And you are also aware. You are properly conceptualizing of your uh, partner. Yeah. Instead of seeing him as some sort of withdrawing a hole, you're like, well, I get him. I understand. You know, when he's stressed, he needs to withdraw. Yeah. And so you're way ahead of the curve yep. than a lot of other people. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, you matter now. Yeah. And now what do you do about that? Right. Hard to know. Obviously, couples therapy is in order because <laughs> this is perfect for that. Right. Um, the other thing I'll say is you need to have other relationships because that you can turn to in those times. And it's not the, it's not going to take away some no. of the pain, but what a lot of us need to do is to spread out our attachment needs. Uh, it can, it can definitely help. Like, yes, it, you know, for example, with you, Mel, you are having one of those classic, uh, stages of your relationship where he's pulling away and you're anxious and you feel alone. If you had someone like a friend or a family member to talk to someone you felt very close to during that time, someone you could hang out with. Yeah. I'm I'm going to take a guess and say that would mitigate yeah. 75% of the problem. It's just sitting there alone and isolated mm. and feeling neglected that can really get into your head. And Ouch. and to expect you as a preoccupied attached person to somehow just cope with it right. is totally unreasonable. So, yes. The solution it you know, the best case scenario, he you can reach out to him and say, "Hey, I need some contact with you. Yeah. I, I don't need total envelopment or enmeshment with you, but I just need some indication that you love me and that you care about me and that'll tide me over another day. But if he is in his place and you're not in therapy to help with this, then that's a tall order for someone like him. He could, he could experience it as some kind of invasion or some kind of, you know, the American uh, myth about independence and what is healthy dependence. And we don't really get that in our culture. And you're conceptualizing it 
in a very charitable way, Mel, but it's possible that when he's pulling away, he's quite angry at you. Uh, when when avoidant oh, people, yeah. avoidant people don't avoid when they're stressed, just like, oh, I'm stressed, I'm going to avoid. They avoid for two main reasons. One is they they just don't predict it's going to work out if they stay in contact. They just they, It's just like, it's hopeless. Yeah. I might as well run. It's sort of like seeing a tidal wave come. It's just like, you just run. You don't you don't stick around and go like, well, maybe I can swim. Like you just you just, <laughs> you just run. You just know because yeah. you've been there so many times right. that you just run. Um, the other reason why avoidance will avoid is because it's their only way of communicating that they're hurt. Right. They have no other way of communicating. Hey, you hurt my feelings. Right. So as you approach him during these moments and say, you know, hey, I need some. Uh, contact it's possible that he's like extremely hurt and angry at you during yeah. those times and he's withdrawing you know partially because of that reason so it's a tall order in the moment without therapy right. to somehow enact some kind of change and that's why it might be important to have other attachments that you can at the very least vent about your partner but better yet feel extremely connected to and feel safe you know that our preoccupation is born out of a feeling of unsafety, a feeling of being alone, a feeling of being left, you know, abandoned. And if you feel connected and close to someone else, then, you know, it'll tide you over or even just cure the problem. And then you can uh, have more resilience to the isolating behavior uh, of your, of your partner. Right on. Um, The other thing I'll say is uh, that, being avoidant doesn't mean you have to be a jerk face, you know, and this is one of the things that I work with avoidance on is it's fine that you feel claustrophobic. It's fine that you feel like you need space. It's fine that you're trying to assert that you need space and you need some time. How do you do that in a way that doesn't hurt the other person? Right. It only takes five seconds to say, I'm having an avoidant episode right now. I love you. I'm so sorry, but I need, I need space because I'm freaking out. It doesn't take long to say that you can say that. But the problem is, is that avoidance, one, are unaware of why they want to avoid, and two, they're terrified of vulnerability. But it doesn't let them off the hook. No, right. Bravo. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. Well, Bob, what's the final word on today's episode? I can't remember what we talked about before this one, so I'm not going to be good at final word. Well, final word about maybe this topic. Oh, you know what I was thinking? Um, I don't know if this is a final word. I was thinking we're, we're such a weird culture because we, we, we hold independence as the ideal at the same time as we tell ourselves that we should put all of our emotional needs into one relationship, our, our partner. We put an extraordinary amount of pressure on one relationship to fill needs that we think we shouldn't have. It's a mind effort. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself and, you know, spread your attachment around because you deserve it.